Um, so yeah, to begin with, Dr. Coopers, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself to us and just talking a bit about the work you currently do. Uh, I'm Terry Coopers. I'm a psychiatrist. Um, I do general psychiatry. I, I have an office practice. I've actually recently retired from my office practice. I teach at the Wright Institute, a graduate school of psychology in Berkeley. Um, and one of the sidelights in my career has been testifying as an expert witness in litigation about uh, jail and prison conditions, about the uh, mental health of prisoners and, and the adequacy of mental health care, and about prison sexual abuse. Um, so I testify as an expert, and when I testify as an expert, I do an investigation. So a group sues a prison system, like the state of California. A, a, a group of attorneys representing the prisoners sues the state of California about cruel and unusual punishment in the prisons. Then the court allows the experts to go in and take a look. So I go in, I interview hundreds of prisoners. I ask them what's going on. I look at their clinical records. I examine the conditions. And then I come into court and testify about it. And that's how we do prison reform, because generally people aren't allowed into the prisons, outsiders are not allowed to come in and see. But when a suit is pressed, um, the court allows the experts to, and the attorneys to go in. We talk about it in court, and then I speak about it publicly. I either write about it or I do interviews, and I guard the confidentiality of the prisoners, but I talk about terrible conditions. Mm. So I've been doing that my entire career for well over 40 years. Wow. So that's that's a very long time <laughs> 40 years yes. so have you seen that things have have things started to improve over those 40 years or is it kind of the same as it was when it started well it's one step forward two steps back things yeah. have very substantially improved but every time we make an improvement something happens that you know in some cases is worse uh, like I um, testified in a case in California in the uh, 1980s mm -hmm. where um, we, we were, the prisoners were suing. It was a class action lawsuit about the quality of mental health care, which was very poor. In the process, while the suit was going on, the state started using tasers are you familiar with tasers? Yeah, electric they tasers against the prisoners inside the prisons, and several people died. Really? So the, the judge was very upset about it, and he said, I'd like to talk to Dr. Coopers about it. So I came to court, and the judge says, what's this about? And I had done a little research, and I said, first of all, the people who died were suffering from mental illness, and they were taking very strong antipsychotic medications. Mm. Those medications lower the seizure threshold, and they also cause arrhythmias in the heart. These are side effects of the medication, and in usual circumstances, that's not a problem. The seizure threshold is lower, but they don't have seizures. But when you then zap them with a taser, which is an electric uh, charge, um, that sets off a seizure, 
and either the general seizure or the heart arrhythmia, which is also set off electrically, is probably killing them. I mean, I wasn't there and I, I didn't watch it and I don't have lab results, but I said, I think that's the problem. Mm. So the judge said, okay, I'm ruling against using tasers inside the prisons. Probably for the and best. What, what year are we talking about? I'm sorry? Uh, what year are we talking about? Mid-1980s, maybe close to 1988 or 89. Mm. Six months later, I I'm asked to come back to court. Uh, now, what they're doing is shooting blocks of wood at the prisoners inside the prison. They're, they're, these are riot guns, they're the kind of thing that you use at a big demonstration where someone is 150 feet away and you shoot them with a block. It's, it's a non-lethal weapon, supposedly. Basically. But if, if you shoot a riot gun inside a prison, there's very small contained space, and the prisoner might be in his cell or out in a hallway, you're shooting at very close distance. It's very likely that block of wood or rubber, it might be, is going to ricochet and could hit them in the eye or in the gut and cause very bad damage. So I'm back in court testifying, is that okay that they're using riot guns inside the prison? I said, Your Honor, absolutely not, that you can kill people with those guns. And besides, these are prisoners with mental illness. This mm -hmm. gun is very loud, it's very frightening, and it's likely to set off very bad psychiatric repercussions. Yeah. Oh, so it's currently being used, the 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 right gun is currently being used in in the prison. No, no oh. I stopped you. Okay, um, because of this trial. So, so it's a lot of progress. If then we make progress. We make a little progress. Right. Something else comes up that's worse. So mm. it, over the years, we've made a lot of progress. We have uh, forced the states and the and the federal government to um, to have standards about mental health care. So there are certain things they have to supply. They have to do suicide assessment. They have to have a suicide prevention program. They have to have uh, the prescription of psychiatric medications. They have to have a place to send prisoners who are more disturbed than the prison mental health services can treat. So if someone is very psychotic or very suicidal, the prison system needs to have a referral mechanism where they, for instance, can go to a psychiatric hospital. So these are all advances. Um, suicide, the rate of suicide in jails and prisons has dropped precipitously. And it was about that time in the late 1980s, it was discovered that we have a suicide epidemic in the jails and prisons. And there's been litigation, and a result of the litigation is they have to screen everybody for suicide. And if someone is a risk of suicide, they have to give them mental health treatment. So that's improved the situation. That's been a very good improvement. In the United States, we have what's called the Prison Rape Elimination Act. And this was from 2003. President Bush signed a bill that Congress passed that requires jails and prisons to uh, educate prisoners about sexual assault in prison so that the prisoners know their right. They have to have a complaint process that's, that's confidential so that prisoners can send in a complaint. For instance, uh, prison rape 
is usually male officers raping female prisoners in women's prisons or in men's prisons it's prisoner on prisoner mm. so there has to be a complaint procedure for instance considering the women who are raped by male staff if a woman is raped by a male officer she doesn't want to complain to the officers about it I was going to say. Yeah. they will team up with the person who's the perpetrator so there has to be an independent reporting procedure. That law has had a very big effect. There's still prison rape going on, but it's improved and everybody accepts that there are certain standards we have because of the Prison Rape Elimination Act. So that's a permanent change that's been very good. In general, things have been improving. The main variable is population size. The United States has had an imprisonment binge since the 1970s. The population of the jails and prisons has multiplied eight or ten times. And this means that facilities are overcrowded. Facilities built for 1,500 people are, uh, contain 3,000 prisoners. When a, when a facility, a jail or a prison, is overcrowded, we have good research showing that the rate of violence, the rate of suicide, and the rate of psychiatric breakdown all increase precipitously. Mm -hmm. And think about it, it's, it's intuitive. Uh, if you have a lot of people in the same space, first of all, there's a shortage of everything. So nobody gets what they need, and there becomes a rivalry between the prisoners, for instance, for time on the phone. So there are very few phones available, Prisoners line up for the phone, and people tend to kind of get upset with each other because they think they're taking too much time on the phone, so they get into a fight. Or there's not enough time to take a shower, and the prisoners get into a fight about it. Uh, the crowding is correlated with violence, and things that are correlated with violence tend to be correlated with mental health uh, problems, mm -hmm. uh, mental breakdown, suicide, that kind of thing. So... We have been working on sentencing reform, and by we, I don't mean the prison system, I mean the community organizers, the, the families of prisoners. Um, and there has been significant progress in terms of sentencing reform. Uh, the reason that the prison population multiplied so many times is because in the 80s and 90s, the United States went through a tough-on-crime period where they increased sentencing for everything. They created three strikes and you're out. They had all kinds of additions to the terms people received. And that's what the crowding was about. Well, that can be fixed by changing the sentencing procedure. So, for instance, President Obama did a very good thing. We had laws about drugs, uh, crack cocaine is a very big problem in the inner cities of the United States. Mostly black and Latino inner city communities have a problem with crack cocaine. Crack cocaine is different than powder cocaine. It's, it's slightly uh, more uh, aggressive, um, but, but it's the same chemical. So if, if you're smoking crack cocaine or you're using powder cocaine, you're, you're in possession of the same chemical substance, but the sentence in prison for being caught with crack cocaine was like six or eight times longer than for powder cocaine. Well, guess what? 
middle class, mostly white people use powder cocaine and black and brown inner city dwellers use crack cocaine. So yeah. what was happening is for the same, what, a quarter of an ounce or something of cocaine, a white person might get four or six years and a black person would get 30 years. So, yes, and we changed that law while Obama was president. And he said, okay, he directed the Justice Department to go look in all of the prisons and find all the black and Latino prisoners who were serving 30-year sentences and should be serving less time because there was a discrepancy between the two forms of cocaine. And so a lot of people were re released early because the sentencing was unfair. Well, they so were, there have been those kind of changes. That's good to hear. So it's, it sounds like some things have been positive. Then. Yeah, very much so. And that's what keeps us going, people who do this work. I mean, I basically am a human rights activist, mm -hmm. and I just do my work by being an expert witness. And what keeps me going is the successes. Mm -hmm. So would you say there has been an overall improvement since 40 years ago? Yes, overall. I would definitely right. say that. Um, the other thing that was going on besides the crowding was that rehabilitation programs were being dismantled. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that we don't want to coddle criminals. Mm. So they would cut things like college classes. You used to be able to do a college class by mail in prison. Mm -hmm. And the senators, some of the conservative senators in the United States said, well, look, I have to pay tuition for my son and my daughter to go to college. I don't want taxpayer money being used to give a criminal a college education. Totally wrong thinking, absolutely the worst kind of thinking in terms of dealing with crime and the well-being of people in the community. But that, uh, that became the, the position of our Congress. And so rehabilitation in the prisons was drastically cut. And that then results in people, so you've got a whole lot of people in crowded prisons with not much meaningful activity to do. It and they get into fights. Mm. Yeah. So um, that was very wrong-headed thinking at the time. And since that time, we've been struggling with that. Mm -hmm. And there has been an increase in the rehabilitation programs. There's been an improvement in mental health programs because uh, the prisoners keep suing about not getting adequate mental health care. Mm -hmm. Same with medical care. So there have been improvements in all of those areas. Mm. Do you think there's like, is there an end goal to all of it though? Is there like an ideal situation for a prison? Is there an ideal prison system anywhere that you can kind of try and mimic in America, do you feel? Or is it just kind of making small improvements and then fixing new problems when they arise? Well, in my opinion, and there's disagreements about this, I, I think no prison is the best prison. Mm. And um, there are model prisons where things are done right. You have one, which I'm very familiar with, Grendon Prison. In England. Are you familiar with that? Um, in Grendon Prison, there is a therapeutic community. Grendon is a very maximum security prison, and people are just randomly assigned there, so it's not a select population. Mm -hmm. But quite a few years ago, in collaboration with Tavistock Institute in London, 
um, a program was begun at Grendon, which gave the prisoners agency to decide things within the prison. They, they couldn't decide to let each other go. You know, <laughs> them that they don't have that kind of power. But, <laughs> but they control, yes, but they control a lot of things in the prison. Well, now looking as a psychiatrist, if we look at the sort of central theme <clears throat> of most mental health problems and most mental health treatments, increasing agency is probably one of the most mental health inducing things we can accomplish. Mm. That is, if we give people more power over their lives, and that's true out in the community, but it's also true in prison. So when you take people who have done crimes, most prisoners did often serious crimes when they were children. That is, they were teenagers or at most in their early 20s when they got into trouble with the law. They sit in prison for a long time thinking about their life and making changes. They educate themselves. They read everything that they can get a hold of. And they become a different person who, than, than the person that did the crime. Now, if you give them orders all the time and punish them for breaking the rules, and that's all you do, and you call them names and you treat them like dirt, and they spend years in that kind of a situation believe it broken in a way and they're going to come out of prison resentful they're going to come out without having a lot of skills but if instead you treat them like a human being with dignity you give them respect and you give them a power to make decisions in their own life then they're going to come out of prison ready to go to work and join the workforce and they're going to be much more successful out in the community well, that's Grendon. Grendon has been very successful. Uh, the staff work with the prisoners. They say, look, we have to make these decisions. What do you guys think? What should happen? And the more you give the prisoners that kind of autonomy, just like out in the community, the more you give people autonomy in their own lives, the more creative, the more critical thinkers they are you know they learn to solve problems they learn to develop new ways to do things and when they come out of prison they're ready to join the workforce they're more capable of being in intimate relationships because instead of following orders and getting punished every time they break a rule for years and years they've actually had to think about what kind of program do we want in this unit and how are we going to handle this situation? They do a form of restorative justice. Is that a familiar, that's an idea from Canada, but it's very popular in the United States these days. Mm. Um, restorative justice, they do that at Grendon. That is, if someone does something unacceptable to the community, the community will discipline them. The, the officers won't put them in solitary confinement. They have such a thing, but they rarely use it because the prisoners are going to get together and say, you took something from so-and-so, and that's not okay. And we're going to work out, first of all, let's hear, about, let's hear from the person you took something from, you stole something, and let's see how they feel about it, and then let's decide what will be the um, punishment for doing that. And the prisoners do it themselves. Well, that's a training in citizenship. They're learning, you know, to 
make decisions and manage their own social milieu. That's what we want. We do not need to train people in compliance when they're in prison. And I think that's the sort of um, modal approach to corrections around the world. That is, you broke the law, we have control of you now, you're inside our prison, you are going to behave the way we tell you to behave, and if you don't do it, we're going to punish you terribly. Mm. And that breaks people. And solitary confinement is sort of the epitome of that. But it breaks people and it makes them not ready to leave prison and be creative, productive human beings. Mm. How do you kind of balance that then with so obviously on one hand you know you want people to reform and become functional members of society but then on the other hand you've got kind of victims of crimes which involve victims and they want to see the person who's commit this crime be punished and be broken in a way which is sad and it's not the way it should be but i guess that's human nature to desire that so how do you kind of balance you know justice for the victim with you know the individual's right to be reformed and returned into society as a functional member that's a very good question, but let me first take issue with you about human nature. Yeah. I don't think that's human nature. I think vengeance is a human possibility. Mm-hmm. So is compassion and love. These are human co- possibilities. So is murder, mm-hmm. but so is nurturing and taking care of each other. These are human capacities. Mm-hmm. I think our society fosters certain capacities and downplays others. So on the theme of vengeance, that someone does a crime and they should do time, uh, an eye for an eye, uh, that is something that is part of our social structure. It's part of our culture. And it's fostered by certain people. I don't think it's good for anybody. There was a study done of the relatives of people who have been murdered, where their murderer went Uh, to death row and was executed Mm -hmm. and the uh, researchers interviewed these people the survivors uh, six months and a year later and they asked them do you feel better because the murderer of your son or your husband or whatever uh, was executed and universally the people said no that actually didn't make me feel better. It made me feel worse. There is no resolution. Losing my son or losing my brother was horrible, and there's no resolution. And the execution of his murderer had absolutely no positive effect. I think vengeance is something we should not be fostering in our society. And so when it comes to prison, there's two, well, there's various purposes for prison. One is retribution, is punishment for uh, illegal and violent things that a person has done. One is quarantine. There are some people that just shouldn't be on the street because if they're on the street, they'll cause harm. Mm -hmm. And another is rehabilitation. And there's a balance between those three things. The first I would call vengeance. Retribution, you know, if you kill someone, we're going to kill you. I don't think that's a positive thing, and I don't think it's human nature. It, it is a human possibility. It's a human potentiality. I don't think it's human nature. Um, but rehabilitation is also there as a possibility. So I've been in a lot of interviews where people grill me about this, and they say, well, this person did a crime, and therefore they should be punished. 
And I say, actually, that's not a very important consideration in uh, the criminal justice system. What we should be thinking about is the fact that 93% of prisoners, and this is true around the world, are eventually released from prison. So the question is, does what we do to them in prison make it more or less likely for them to do crime and violence when they get out? Mm -hmm. You have a prison system that is singularly focused on retribution and vengeance, and you punish people harshly, including solitary confinement, then what you're going to have among the people who get out of prison is broken people who resort to drugs and do crimes again because they're not capable of doing anything else. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you focus on rehabilitation and give people a second chance, there, there's an organization in the United States called CURE. And what, it, what the, the initials stand for is Committee United for the Rehabilitation of Errants. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it's a wonderful title because that's what the criminal justice system is about. Yeah. It's young people who do serious crimes. They then grow up and mature. And they're a very different person than, on average, than the person that did the crime. Mm -hmm. The question is, what are we going to do with them between now and the time they get released back to the community? Mm -hmm. And I think, there's no question about it, we should give them an education, we should train them in marketable skills, and we should give them a chance to succeed when they get out. From my understanding of the results, the outcome from Grendon and other model programs around the country is that the people who are released from prison after serving time there are much more capable of loving intimate relationships and being productive citizens than people who were basically abused and broken when they were behind bars. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, in the case of Grendon, do you know? Um, so, what level of crime are we talking about? Uh, are we talking about sort of drugs? Because, so for, I don't know. I would find it difficult. For example, in a is it there are like three classes we have in the UK? I think right in the like class in a class A prison for them to give them that kind of democracy. If we, like for example, murderers. If if you have murderers and. Is, is that still possible to apply that system for those prisons? We should look this up, but I believe Grendon is the most maximum Is security. it? Okay. It's one of your maximum security. What are your levels called? One, two, three, four? Or are they A, B, C? Or how do you... Do, do you know, Asha? <sighs> no, I'd have to check. I'd have to check. I know there I, are three. I know there are three. That's, uh, yeah, I once knew that, but, right. but Grendon is the highest security prison. And, and it is only, it's one of your highest security prisons, but people in there have committed murder or, or armed uh, robbery or something like that. Wow. So it, it's not a low-level crime. Uh, and facility. they're capable of, democ like, sort of, um, the legislating uh, prison laws. Yes. Wow. Mm. Isn't that amazing? Um, you know, if you there, there are contradictions within our criminology statistics. Uh, one uh, statistic is that people who murder, when they're released from prison, on average, they never commit another violent crime. 
Now there is, is a subpopulation who are professional murderers. That's what they they murder for you know that's their business. Mm. Well, they, when they get out of prison, they go back to business and they murder again. So they don't they're not part of the phenomenon I'm describing. But most murders are committed out of passion. Most people who commit those murders have a lot of time to think about what they've done and they change themselves. Yeah, and I guess. And then, the, yeah. the repeat murderers are the exception, and then that's what makes it into the headlines. But that's not actually the average case. And I guess they would be the sort of like because a certain percentage of every population is psychopaths, like very small, but they exist with no sense of they're incapable of human empathy. Um, and it's. I think I, I I looked up the I watched a documentary on this and apparently the only way is to deter them from pun you can't really you can't sort of morally convince them that not to do bad things. Um but then again uh, if if other sy other systems work better then I think I think we should apply their systems. So whilst we're at it, I was going to ask you, uh, what do you think of uh, Norway's prisons? Well, let let me say something about your first question, yes, and then and then move on to Norway. Yeah. Um, yes, you you are correct. There are a few, and they're outliers. There are individuals that are psychopathic killers, and they'll kill again. And, and it's an odd phenomenon. It's extremely rare. Mm. Not all prisoners, and certainly not all people who have murdered, are psychopaths. Right. Yeah. As I said, most murders are, are, are a crime of passion or a crime of a stupid kid. Mm. So in the United States, we have a very big problem with gangs. I think in England, they try to uh, emulate our gangs, but our gangs are worse and, and we're not a good lot of violence. Yeah, they try. When you have a 14 year old kid in an inner city yeah. who looks up to the gang leaders because his parents, his father beats him and he's absent and he's having affairs or whatever, so he goes out on the street and, and admires the gang leader. The gang leader says, Hey, I want you to do this. I want you to go rob that store over there. The kid says, sure, show me where it is. I'll rob it. And this is a 14-year-old kid. And when I meet these kids, they're 30 or 40 years old, and they will tell me, I was a stupid kid. I did some awful things. I'm not that stupid kid anymore. Yeah. So those people, including some who have committed murder, are not psychopaths. Yeah. yeah. Psychopaths are an extremely small number, and what happens is in the criminal justice system, they get labeled as a psychopath or more frequently, and this is a larger group, antisocial personality mm, disorder. Yeah. It's an unfair label, and the reason it's an unfair label is the whole idea of a, a personality disorder is it's a lifetime pattern of personality traits which the rest of the definition is it has to uh, result in some dysfunction. What I see mostly, the average case and the majority of cases that I see of prisoners, is that when they were 14 years old or 16 or whenever they got in trouble, they were pretty antisocial. They didn't care about the feelings of their crime victims. But they're now 30 or 40 years old because they're doing a 20 or 30 year sentence for their crimes, and they've changed. They're not the same person. 
They're very empathic. I can tell when I meet them. If I uh, seem tired, they say, what's the matter? Are you okay? Hmm. I mean, there is a, a level of empathy, you know, that I don't find that much out here in the community. They're very sensitive. And I, I'm looking at them and I say, they, they say you're an antisocial personality. And they'll laugh and say, yeah, well, I wasn't too good of a guy when I was a teenager. That's I wouldn't have run it, wanted to run into me on the street. But... I'm a different person now. Yeah. So that's my, now there are a few outliers. There are a few people who are dangerous. Mm-hmm. When I go into prisons, I talk to people. And there are a few people who it's not safe for me to be in a room with them. Mm-hmm. And the way I find that out is I talk to the officers. And the officers say, do you want to be in the room with him by yourself? And I say, are you nervous about me being in a room by myself with him? And if an officer tells me, yes, I am, he beat up the last doctor who came to see him. Oh, and I said, oh I get it. Okay, you come in the room with me. Um, but that's a rare occurrence. I've interviewed over a thousand prisoners behind bars. I mean, in jails and prisons. And I've had to do that once or twice. That's all. And I've been on death rows. I sit in a room with people on death row. They, they're not going to hurt me. Mm-hmm. The second question you asked about Norway, we're very interested in what's going on in Norway, Finland, Sweden. They have an entirely different attitude about crime and punishment in the Scandinavian countries. I think it's based in their religious and cultural history. And what it is is this. When someone commits a crime, that is a failure of our social arrangements we have failed to educate them both in terms of cognitively but also in case of their moral education and their emotional education we have messed up so they do a crime we lock them up now first of all we only lock up a few people most people who do crimes we put them in a program i'm saying we but i mean the 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 scandinavian authorities Put them in a program. If they can't read, we teach them how to read. And if they have anger problems, we work with them about their anger. If they have mental problems, we put them in a mental health program. Mm -hmm. Um, Only a very small number of people go to prison, and they're guilty of the worst crimes. Now, what are we going to do with them in prison? First thing to notice about the Scandinavian prisons is there are no guards. I think they might call them guards, but those people who take care of the prisoners have a degree in education, in mental health treatment, and in police work. A three-way training. I don't know what level of degree. It might be equivalent to college. It might be below college, like community college or something. But their training has three parts to it. Education, psychology, and custody or or security and they have relationships with the prisoners where they say to him you know you didn't turn in your homework yesterday what's up and they encourage them very different than american prisons where, where the officers do not talk to the prisoners much and they're mean to them they you know they scowl at them they yell at them they insult them um, there's racism in the American prisons. Almost 50% of American prisoners are black. Yeah. 
And African Americans make up 13% of the American population. Wow. Why are 50 percent of the prison? It's 40 something, but it's close to 50%. Why do we have so many black prisoners? And here I call this an attribution error. You could say there's something about blackness that makes one tend towards crime and violence. You could say that. That's sort of an individual attribution. Mm. Or you could say there's something about our system which is racist to a core. Mm. There's yeah. something about slavery in the United States and the history of slavery that results in people of color, particularly African Americans, going to prison. Well, look, look at the policing in the community. There are more squad cars in the black ghetto than anywhere. They're roaming around it all the time. Now, they say that's because that's where the crime is, but that's not true. There's crime elsewhere. You find crime anywhere if you have that high level of security and policing in those areas as well, I guess. Yes. So what we do is the police stop people and frisk them. Mm. Well, if you stop middle-class kids, white kids, in the suburbs in the United States, you will find drugs. And actually, there's been research about this. You'll find the same amount of, of drugs that you'll find in a black kid in the ghetto. You will find a certain percentage of the kids, they've got a joint in their pocket or they've got some coke or something. Yeah. But in the white community, there aren't the police around stopping them and frisking them. Mm. In the black community, there are. Now, once they're stopped and the police think there's something wrong, they have drugs or whatever, in the white community, they will take them home to their parents and say, your kid has a joint and that's not okay. You need to take control of this. Yeah. In the black community, they put them in the squad car, probably after beating them up, and put them in, in jail. Then they go to court. The white kid has a private attorney who the parents pay for and probably a therapist because the parents are upset that the kid has gotten into trouble and they say, you have to see a therapist and they go pay for a therapist. The black kid goes to court. He doesn't have a lawyer. He's going to have a public defender. Public defender is going to be overly busy and not going to spend much time with him. The black kid's going to get convicted. The white kid's going to walk free. Then when it comes to sentencing, there's very good research about this. People of color in the United States have sentences immensely longer and rougher than white middle-class people. So in all these ways, and then this continues right into the jail and the prison. If you go into the prisons, the supermax solitary confinement units where people are put as punishment are filled with black and Latino prisoners much greater proportion uh, than their proportion in the population. So we have this systematic racism, racism right through the system. And actually the history of prisons in the United States begins with slavery. We, our civil war was 1860 to 1864. Prior to the civil war, what we had in the South was plantations with slaves. None of them went to jail. Because the slave, the plantation owner did the, the discipline. Mm -hmm. Plantation owners would whip the slaves. They would cut off fingers and feet and stuff. They would kill them. And nobody did anything about it. After the Civil War, it became illegal to have slaves. The prisons in the South were entirely white before the Civil War. 
Mm. There were no black people in prison. After the Civil War, now the white people in prison were released to go join the Confederate Army. Mm -hmm. So the prisons were emptied out. After the war, there were these black codes, they were called. They were laws against black people, for instance, appearing in a place far from their home, crossing certain boundaries, or looking a certain way at white women. There were all kinds of laws constructed which black people then were, were, were arrested for, and they were put in prison. The next thing that happened is they were leased to the plantation owners who previously had the slaves. Wow. And now what they would do is go to the prison and they would lease prisoners, which would be black prisoners, take them to their plantation and put them to work for no money because they were prisoners. Yeah. Now, if the prisoner died, who was leased by the plantation owner, the plantation owner would go back to the prison and said that, and then he would call him a negative name, was no good. He died on me. And the warden would say, oh, I'm sorry, we'll give you another one. That was the history of prisons in the United States. So the southern prisons filled up with black people. Well, that then became nationwide. That sort of spread everywhere. And there was a heightened police presence in black communities as black people migrated to the north. That's what was the history of the late uh, 19th century in the United States. So the prisons grew out of slavery. And the racism is just pervasive. And if you talk to black prisoners, they will tell you this story. They know it. They've read books about it, and they will point out that they were just never given a fair chance. So that's the way in which prisons and racism in our society are just inextricably tied together. Even now, I guess, in those communities, when you're, when you're like you were saying, you're growing up in a society where all the male role models and influences have either been arrested and put into prison or are on the streets. How can you get out of that self-perpetuating cycle of crime? How can you end it before it gets to the level of going to prison? Because I guess reforming prison is one thing, but ideally you'd want to stop the situation from getting that far in the first place. You'd want to do something about the kid on the street before he goes and becomes influenced by those gangs. How can you do that? In the United States, in the big cities, the main determinant of criminal behavior is zip code. If you come from a low-income inner-city community, you probably are going to have trouble finishing high school. There's going to be a very low rate of going to college. The work that is done by you and all your neighbors is going to be very low-skilled and very low-paid. And a lot of people, including your neighbors, are going to live in poverty. Now, when you ask, how can we fix that? We can't fix that by locking up a disproportionate number of poor people. That's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. We lock them up and we say, you did the bad behavior. We want you to change your behavior. How about doing something about social inequity? We have an unprecedented gap between the rich and the poor in the United States. I think you have that in England too. Yeah, that causes crime. When you have, first of all, people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder, they have no way to support themselves. 
And for instance, a lot of, of people who get arrested for crimes stall to feed their family. Why don't we make that unnecessary? Why don't we create, now we have much less of a social welfare network than you do. I mean, the United States for the last 40 years has been dismantling our social welfare system, our safety net. Our um, politicians so have tried to, though. Don't worry. <laughs> We're trying to dismantle it as well. They are trying. <laughs> That's right. We currently have a cabal in charge of the United States. Trump is just mainly their spokesman. But what they believe is they know nothing. They owe nothing to people less uh, advantaged than them. So they do not want to pay for medical care for poor people, for public education. They just want to take all the money for themselves. And that's where crime comes from. So what you do is you dispossess a large percentage of the population. They're destined to live in poverty. They cannot feed their families. And then a certain number of them commit crimes. And you say, see, they're bad people. Well, the social arrangements created the crime situation. So in order to fix it, what you have to do is deal with the social inequity. We just had a major, major tax cut in the United States. People who make more than a million don't pay taxes. That's what our Congress decided. And we have a lot of people that make more than a million. They do not pay any taxes. Like zero. Pretty much, because they get deductions. It works out to be close to zero, yes. The people who pay taxes are the poor people. Now, that was a decision by the United States Congress and our president. That's the wrong decision. If you want to do something about crime and you want to improve the life of the most disadvantaged people in our midst, then you do it the other way around. You do a progressive tax so that the wealthy who won't feel it one bit pay a huge amount of tax. Then you take that tax and you use that to pay for public education so that the next generation of poor people won't have to be unemployed or you know, employed at a very low wage. And the situation could become more equitable. If we want to do something about crime, that's what we have to do. And there is not the will to do that in the United States. Now, I think what's going to happen now is we're going to have a change in government and the Democrats in the United States, who also represent big business and rich people, but they're, they're not, you know, George Bernard Keynes. Nope. He was a, a British uh, economist in the 19, I don't know, 20s or 30s. And the New Deal in the United States, which is Franklin Delano Roosevelt was our president, and he did the New Deal, which is where um, Social Security, uh, public work projects, all, the, all of that came from. And um, what Keynes said, it's K-E-Y-N-E-S, what Keynes said is, I'm not against capitalism. I mean, this was a time when, you know, Marxists were very prominent around the world. And Keynes said, I'm not, I'm not anti-capitalist. However, I think capitalism would work better if you put a floor under the people in terms of their economic level and their comfort in life. So yeah. I think we ought to give welfare to people who can't make it out there 
in the work world, in the competitive uh, mix. And so I think we should pay for health care, for instance. And I think that's why you have socialized medicine in England is because yeah. people listen to Keynes. Yeah. Um, in the United States, Keynes didn't win. We had Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the New Deal in the 1930s, which pulled us out of the Depression. And that was a Keynesian, Keynesian revolution. And then we had John F. Kennedy in the 60s, same thing. He believed in the war on poverty. He wanted to do Head Start to give disadvantaged kids a chance to get an education. He wanted to pay for the public schools. He wanted to do the Peace Corps, etc. And that is a Keynesian or Keynesian uh, government. I think that's the next step. I think in the United States, that's what's going to happen after this next election, is that there's there's going to be a turn away from the reactionary policies of Trump. And Biden, although he's not a great visionary, I think he, uh, he'll win. Mm. And he'll surround himself with people who basically believe we have to uh, deal with the problems of poverty and inequity and racism. And therefore, we're going to have programs, for instance, to improve the public schools, to improve public health, to actually have a public mental health. We haven't talked about mental health yet. Oh, yeah. But the United States has reneged on public mental health. And we've been doing that for 50 years. That's why there are so many people with mental illness in prison. So we don't have any public mental health program. We've stopped supporting low-income living for people who can't afford rent. And then people who have a mental illness aren't able to compete and they become homeless. They do a certain amount of substances, drugs and alcohol, and they get arrested. So we now have, and there's been recent research about this, we have 10 times as many people in jail and prison with a serious mental illness than we have in our psychiatric hospitals. Wow. So the jails and prisons are the psychiatric hospital of choice in the United States. And so that's where a lot of the prison problems come from. The prison health services can't take care of them. And so that all of these problems kind of play on each other. So it sounds from what you're saying that the reason the, the prevalence of mental health disorder in prison is so high is because people with pre-existing mental health disorders, you know, through no fault of their own, through faults of society, end up in prison. Is there not some extent to which prisons themselves and the system of prison as it is now causes people to acquire mental health disorders and problems yes and that's exactly right and and it's a circle it's it's a vicious circle yeah. so what we've done is we've failed to provide treatment and housing and jobs for people with serious mental illness they've gone to jail and prison in unprecedented numbers in prison, the things that happen to them make their mental illness worse. And the worst offender in that is solitary confinement. Yeah. So what we've done is we've put a whole lot of people with mental illness in prison. Nobody knows what to do with them. When they were in the psychiatric hospital, at least the psychiatrists were trying to figure out what to do with them. Correction officers don't know what to do with them, and they don't care. They still, if they break rules, they punish them. 
And that's not their job. And I've talked to many correction officers who are not bad people about this. And they'll say, I don't know what to do with them. That guy is too crazy to be out on the street. So they sent him to me. I'm not trained in mental health. I don't know what to do with him. I'm sending him to segregation, the whole, you know, the punishment. Yeah. And then what happens is that selectively people with mental illness end up in solitary confinement, which exacerbates their mental illness. And then they become more chronic. So you, they get sent to, to segregation because they broke a rule or something or because the officers didn't know what to do with them. In segregation, they start having more hallucinations. They become more paranoid. They start attacking the officers when they come to their cell. They get in fights with other prisoners if they're allowed to have contact with other prisoners. And the officer says, we better leave them in segregation. We can't manage them out here in the, in the prison. Just so they leave them in segregation, which makes their mental illness even worse. Mm -hmm. And then what you have is a whole bunch of people who are very disturbed and they're in solitary confinement and nobody's going to let them out because they're too dangerous. Mm. Uh, so whilst we're at it, uh, could you tell us about, could you walk us through uh, what happens to human psyche when put in isolation over long periods of time? What, what goes on through people's heads when they're isolated? Yes. Now, this is complicated, and I've written two books about it. So let me try to explain it quickly. Um, first of all, here's an observation. Uh, when I get asked to do a lawsuit, the lawsuit will take the form of this. We have, in the United States, our uh, Bill of Rights has this 10 uh, rights that we have. The Eighth Amendment to the Constitution, which is their, the 10... Uh, components of the Bill of Rights is the uh, prohibition of cruel and unusual punishment. Mm -hmm. That is usually what the lawyers sue about. And they say that one or another thing going on in prison, either when someone has a medical condition, they do not get treated. That's cruel and unusual punishment. If they have a psychiatric problem, they're made to... Uh, suffer conditions that make their mental illness worse and they're not treated adequately. That's cruel and unusual punishment. The same things that the international community considers torture in the United States are considered Eighth Amendment violations, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so what happens is that people in solitary universally, so when I go into, into the prisons, that's what I'm looking for. They send me in there to look at what is the negative impact of solitary confinement, particularly on people with mental illness. So I go in and I make some empirical observations. First observation, people in solitary are very anxious. Often they complain of panic attacks where their heart is beating out of their chest, they can't breathe, etc. That's the most universal symptom in solitary confinement. Uh, second, their thinking is disordered. They become paranoid in many cases. Next, they can't concentrate and their memory is impaired. So I ask people in solitary, I say, well, what do you do all day? I lie in my bunk. And I say, well, why don't you read it's someone who, who, who can read? And I say, if I was in solitary, I would read everything I can get a hold of. 
-hmm. And he'll say, well, first of all, they won't allow me to have much stuff in here to read. And second of all, when I read, I forget what I had read at the top of the page or on the page before, and I give up. That's a symptom of solitary confinement. Despair and depression, they become hopeless. They think, I'm never going to get out of here. They pace, they clean their cell over and over again. And another thing is anger. The anger mounts, and they don't know why anger is mounting. The longer they're in solitary, the angrier they get, and they don't understand it. They'll say to me, I know I'm angry about being in here, but, you know, they put me in here, and I've been here for a while. I should adjust. I can't adjust. I keep getting more and more angry, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose control of my anger and get in more trouble with the guards, and then they're going to keep me in here even longer because they'll give me a ticket, and, and I'll get another sentence to solitary. So all of these symptoms are in relatively stable people. These prisoners, they're not suffering from mental illness, but they have all the symptoms I just described. There are others, insomnia, severe insomnia, headaches, a lot of symptoms. If someone has a mental illness or if they're prone to mental illness, they're going to have an exacerbation of their mental illness. So if they're suffering from schizophrenia, they're going to have very severe psychotic episodes. And usually with schizophrenia, people have a psychotic episode, then they go into remission. Usually we treat them, we give them some medication and some therapy, and they go into remission and six months or a year later, they have another episode. Mm. In solitary confinement, they start having episodes every other week, or they stay constantly in a psychotic state. Nobody cares. They're in a cell by themselves. The guards just let them holler. They pass them a food tray. Um, and, and so their condition gets worse and it gets more chronic and, and, and more untreatable. So that's what happens with serious mental illness. The suicide rate is sky high in solitary confinement units. In general, the suicide rate in, in prison is approximately twice what it is in the community at large. But inside prison, 50% on average, in some states is 40%, some states 60%, so I just uh, average it out to 50%. 50% of prison suicides occur in the two or four or six percent of people who are in solitary confinement. And this is a well-known fact. So every, every uh, psychiatry book you read about prison suicide says, do not put someone who's suicidal in a solitary confinement cell. It will lead them to commit suicide. So we have all of these problems with people in solitary. Now, I call this the decimation of life skills. Mm -hmm. That is, being in a cell by yourself causes a lot of emotional problems, a lot of disability but also they become permanent. So that some of the worst damage is people basically forget how to relate socially. I have wives and mothers, you know, of men who have been in solitary confinement calling me and saying, I don't know what to do with my son. He won't talk to me. I can't figure out what's going on with him. He won't put anything in words. Wives say this. And, and there's a tremendous divorce rate because of this. He just won't tell me what's going on. 
And the reason is he learned in prison to keep his cards close to his chest, not to share what's going on, particularly emotions and weakness. You don't share that in prison. You can get beat up or raped. Mm -hmm. So he's learned to be closed off. And then in solitary confinement, he sort of withdrew into himself. And that's a widespread problem in solitary. So they come out of solitary confinement not having the social skills to be in an intimate relationship. And as you can imagine, it's awfully hard to work when you don't have the skills to talk to somebody. But also there are, there's hyper-awareness, there's a fear of being with strangers, because in prison they learned if you're with a stranger, you can get hurt. So you want to hang out only with people you know and you want to stay away from crowds in prison. Um, so they come out and they have all these problems relating socially. That's what I call the decimation of life skills. Mm. And I'm very concerned about that. The people with mental illness come out with worse mental illness that's more chronic and untreatable. The people without mental illness come out broken. They basically seek aloneness. They're reclusive. They mm. seek solitude and they have trouble relating socially. So there's my concern. Now, I have, I've studied this in terms of brain uh, function and structure. This is, is absolutely, it, it's synchronous. The psychological changes and the physical changes are going on at the same time, and, and they're causing each other. So in the, in the brain area, we know this. I'm, I'm talking very simple neurophysiology. When we get excited, angry or scared, our adrenals fire and they release cortisol and adrenaline. All right, that's an observable physiological reaction. Those chemicals in the brain stimulate certain parts of the brain more than other parts. The part they stimulate we call the limbic system. And it's a, uh, a line of the brain that goes right basically down the temple. It's called the limbic system. And, um, and it's the seat of emotions. That's where emotions are processed. Mm -hmm. Now, we also have in our brain a prefrontal cortex, which is right under our forehead. And that's where our intelligence is, our cognitive capacity, our moral, our judgment. All of that is in the prefrontal cortex. In normal life, there's a dialectical relationship between the free prefrontal cortex and the temporal or, or limbic system. What happens when there is repetitive firing of the adrenals is that that adrenaline and cortisol causes a firing of the temporal lobe. It's a little, I'll tell you, an analogy is a rut in the road during the rainy season. The more cars traverse the road, the deeper the rut gets. Mm -hmm. Well, in the brain, the more firing in the temporal lobe, the more the pathways in the temporal lobe become habituated. And then they control behavior. Now let's go back to the symptoms. Mm -hmm. Anxiety has to do with a selective firing of the temporal lobe. Anger, selective firing of the temporal lobe. The emotional effect of the anxiety and the anger is not modulated as much as it could be by the prefrontal cortex, which is relatively less powerful when the temporal lobe is being overstimulated. Mm -hmm. So there's a very simple 
physiological and brain structure model of the symptoms I've just described about solitary confinement. Mm. So now the people with, with, with these problems in solitary come out of solitary and they have chronic, long-term, possibly permanent disability because of that experience of sitting there with all that anxiety and anger for all those years and their temporal lobe is, is hypertrophying. And I'm sure it varies, you know, depending on the particular person who's going through the situation, but is there kind of a general time scale for that to occur? So like how long does one have to be sitting in solitary confinement to get these irreversible changes to their brain and their behavior? I don't have a specific question, answer to that question because I haven't done the brain studies. We can do these studies, but, but they don't let us study prisoners. But there are things like PET scans, photon emission tomography, where we can see what part of the brain is firing. It lights up in color. You've probably seen it on the web. Um, we could do that, but it hasn't been done. I am not describing very short-term changes. I have watched people fall apart when they're put in solitary confinement in a matter of days. On average, the discussion has moved to 14 days. And the reason is because the Special Rapporteur on Torture of the United Nations, Mr. Mendez, a few years ago, 10 years ago, said that he believes that anything more than 14 days in solitary amounts to torture. And that's become, and that's become the worldwide standard. So there is a set of rules by the United Nations called the Mandela Rules, which is the, about the treatment of prisoners, and it prohibits solitary confinement for more than 14 days. Hmm. Back to your question. I have seen people fall apart in a few days in solitary. More often, it's a few weeks when they start falling apart. The specific physiologic and brain structure changes that I described don't happen in a few weeks. That happens in years of being in solitary. So there's a range of effect and not everybody has permanent brain damage in two days or something like that. It's something that builds up over time and we don't really have the studies to, to know exactly what's the critical time. Mm. Also, there are individual differences. So some people can go into solitary, particularly if they're used to being alone. It's like sheltering in place now with mm. social distancing. Some people say, oh, well, now you're getting the experience that I've been having for years because I always sit home by myself watching television. And so this is nothing new to me. And other people are saying, I can't stand this. I can't stand not seeing my friends. And the people differ. And um, are there any practices that you think people have used to manage to keep themselves sane during the isolation? Definitely. <laughs> Um, and there's been a bunch of publications. There is a website that I recommend, and it's called Solitary Watch. And it's about solitary confinement. It's, it's out of either New York or Washington. Um, it's some top-notch journalists. And they have both journalists writing about Solitary Watch, and they publish every bit of scientific experiment that comes out. And they have prisoners and formerly incarcerated people writing about their experience in, in solitary. There's been a number of articles on that website where formerly incarcerated people and some people who are currently prisoners in solitary have been saying, so now you're seeing a little bit what our life is like. 
Solitary confinement in prison is drastically different than shelter in place mm -hmm. because we have all kinds of uh, privileges and freedoms out here that they don't have in prison. So it's, it's nothing like solitary in prison, except it is because we're stuck in our house or our apartment or whatever. Yeah. And so what people are saying is things like this. In solitary, what I do is I get up. I could stay undressed all day because nobody sees me. I'm just in a solitary cell. They're going to pass a, a food tray through my uh, port in my door, but no one cares whether I get dressed or not. I get dressed. At 7 in the morning every day, I get dressed, and I do an hour of exercise, and that's by schedule. Then I sit and I read for two hours. Then it's lunchtime. I have lunch, and then I write to my mother. And I do that every day, or I do it Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and I have a different schedule, Tuesday and Thursday. Mm -hmm. And they said, that keeps me from going insane. Mm -hmm. So their advice to people out in the world, and the place where I've seen this most usefully uh, uh, applied is with children, school children, who, who aren't going to school now, and they have to study on the screen. It's extremely critical that they have a schedule, and their parents need to help make this happen. So that instead of just having the whole day in front of them with no structure, they know that they have to do chemistry for this many hours. They have to do math for that many hours. They have to get exercise. They have to spend time talking to their friends on telephone or by Zoom. And that's something that the people in solitary confinement can teach us. Because if they don't create a schedule for themselves, um, they're going to fall apart. They're going to get disoriented. Each day is going to blend into the other days, and they're not going to have any sense of time. Mm -hmm. So they, they say, I keep a calendar. And on my calendar, I fill in my activities. Now, I don't have any activities, so I fill in, write a letter to your mother. Do exercise, etc. Well, that's very valuable to those of us who are sheltering in place. Mm -hmm. And the other thing they do is they do as much communication as they can. They write letters. They use the phone. Now, their phone and even their mail is very restricted. But they take maximal advantage of the restricted communication possibilities. And they recommend that for us, particularly, again, school children. Mm. Talk to your buddies. Call them up. You know, this is more of a problem for boys. Gr girls are going to tend to relate to each other and be social. The boys tend to do their own thing. Just on average, it's not absolute. But So their advice to boys is don't stay to yourself. Call up your friends. Make some connection. Tell them what this is like for you. And that's what the prisoners do in solitary. The most successful prisoners, I, I've been talking about how destructive solitary confinement is, but the truth is people come out amazingly healthy and strong. And they're exceptional people. So I'll t have one to recommend to you, which is Albert Woodfox. He's one of the Angola Three. I have you ever heard of the Angola Three? These are three former, well, they're not former, they're still Black Panther Party members. Oh, I have heard of, was he spent, I think, 20-something years? A couple of years ago. Yeah. After He's my age. He's like almost 80. And he, um, 
he spent 34 years in solitary confinement at Angola State Prison in Louisiana for a murder of a guard that he obviously never had anything to do with. Mm. I am told by prisoners at Louisiana State Prison that everybody knows who killed that guard. Really? Yes, and the person that killed that guard is in the prison and has a life sentence without parole. Mm. So the warden, and the warden knows who killed the guard, he, he never prosecuted the guy that killed him. And he put the three Black Panthers in the prison into solitary confinement. Indefinite. Albert, hmm? Indefinite solitary confinement. Yes. Well, Albert spent 34 years in yeah. solitary confinement. And he wrote a book called Solitary. Yeah. I recommend it to you. It's a brilliant book. He came out. He's a very humble man. He's extremely intelligent. He's charismatic. And he wrote a book which is full of wisdom like you... You know, this is a book that you would pick up and read even if it wasn't written by a prisoner and you would say, this guy's very wise. I'm going to really pay attention to what he's saying. And the book is absolutely full of wisdom and it's a brilliant book. Now, he violates every rule I just gave you. But he thinks every change in human psyche you told us didn't apply to him. Right. He does not have the decimation of life skills. He did not get overly angry, or rather, I should say, he learned to control his anger. He, um, he, he, he has not been isolated. There's been a worldwide movement around him and the other two. And, um, and he kept in touch with lots and lots of people. Wow. So he's come out. He, he's an amazing exception to everything I said. Hmm. I, I have noticed something. You can tell that my politics are a bit radical. Um, actually, I learned some of that in England. I, I studied Marx in, while I was in London. I was studying <laughs> for a year. Um, he, he is very radical. I find a lot of very, very bright, radical thinkers inside solitary confinement units. And that's interesting. I'll go in there. I don't know if you know Franz Fanon. He was a Algerian-born psychoanalyst during the 50s and 60s. He wrote a book, The Wretched of the Earth, which was a handbook for revolutionaries in the 60s. Black man in Algeria. He was part of the Algerian revolution. And um, I read him voraciously when I was in training and when I was trying to understand the radical movements and such. So I read Fanon, studied him closely, but nobody reads Fanon out in the world. No. But I go into prison, and people know Fanon. They've read his books. And I say, how did you find out about Fanon? They said, I read everything, particularly black prisoners I'm talking about. So here's what I think happens. I think prison guards, on average, are not the brightest people in the world. They're very low paid. You know, they probably are wannabe cops. That they would have liked to be on the police department, but they didn't make it, so they went to work in the prison. They're intimidated by bright black prisoners mm-hmm. or Latino prisoners uh, or people of color in general. Um, so they get into an argument. The black prison, they're going to say, hey, the guard says, you can't do that. I'm going to write you a ticket. 
And the black prisoner says, well, I've read the rules here. And actually, I can do this. It's in the rules. Officers, I don't care, and hits them, writes them a ticket, and puts them in the hall. And, and I'm, I'm just giving you one uh, illustration. But the reason why there are so many extremely bright people of color in solitary is that they intimidate the guards. Mm -hmm. So I go into solitary and I get into these intellectual discussions with these guys. They're sitting in the hall. They, they have nothing they can do. They can't talk to anybody. And I find some of the most intelligent people I've met. Wow. And Albert Wood Fox is one of those. And I know many others. Albert Wood Fox. Crazy. Definitely will check his stuff out. Um, was it the, did you say Solitary was the book he's written? You could do a podcast with him. He's in, <laughs> do you think we can get him on? <laughs> I think he's back in, in um, New Orleans, which is yeah. where he's from. Put in a good word for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see him rarely, but I love seeing him. I'm inspired. That's really interesting. And so did, go, for it, go for it. How how did he manage to keep his... I mean, it's probably quite yeah. a difficult question to answer, but how did he manage well, to keep his sanity? Yes, he talks about that in his book. His book is quite wonderful. It's riveting what he says. He tells the story of his life, but uh, it's, it's, it's very, very educational. Uh, on the topic of coping, I was wondering um, if you're aware of uh, sort of any research on um, any research being done on meditation, and if that could help in a uh, in a, if you if you're in isolation, essentially, because that's what all all meditation is about, is about isolating your mind from the outside stimulus. So I was wondering if yeah, there are any research um, on that front. Yes, there's been research. The research is clinical, mm. and that is a lot of the people who do services with prisoners, for instance, go into prison and teach classes or do therapy, use a lot of Eastern thought and practice. Mm. And then they write articles in the clinical literature. So it's researched in that way. But yes, there's a very strong... Um, a predilection for meditation, yoga, and such. In prison in general, in solitary confinement in particular. So a lot of the uh, wisest and most successful prisoners in solitary who I meet tell me that they meditate daily or that they follow the work of one or another guru. And, and yes, it's very important. Mindfulness is a very important part of the practice of a, a lot, not all, but a lot of uh, people who are in solitary or in prison. Wow, I was a bit hes hesitant to ask the question. I was like, oh, you, you, I, but I, I, I didn't expect that the answer that many that prisoners... you? Huh. Yeah, so prison, I, I think we might have prisoners who do like more meditation than us in the... Wow. Yes. There, there is a prisoner on death row in California at San Quentin Prison. His first name is Jarvis, and I can't recall right off his last name, but he's, he's a death row prisoner. He's been there for 20 or 30 years. He's probably innocent, um, but he is a, a, a master uh, at Eastern thought and meditation, and he writes books. He's a wonderful writer. Wow. Did you say his first name was Jarvis? Jarvis, let me, I'll look it up. 
Thank you. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. I, I'm going to need to get off in a few minutes. Are we covering right. the subjects you wanted to cover? Yeah, no, this is great. Thank you very much yeah, for covering. Yeah. It's, it's been perfect. You know, I excuse me one second. I have I edited a book and he has a chapter. Oh, Masters, Jarvis Masters. Jarvis Masters. Uh, I edited a book on prison masculinities and he has a chapter in it. Jarvis Masters. And you say he's still on death row. He's still on death row all day. We we have not done any executions in California for maybe fifteen or twenty years. Uh, so there's, uh, I think, 600 or 800 prisoners on death row who have a death sentence, but it's mm -hmm. unclear if they'll ever be executed. I can't imagine living, you know, not knowing whether or not you're going to live to next week or next month. It must be such a... Yes. I don't even comprehend that kind of situation. Yes, that's mm -hmm. a whole other issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, we don't want to keep you for much longer. There's just a couple more things I wanted to ask. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's, it's kind of more general, but um, obviously, I guess, in society today or in the past couple of decades, mental health disorders generally in public have been on the rise. I don't know whether it is... Well, firstly, do you think that as a psychologist, is it something that is rising in the population or is it just that we're getting better at diagnosing mental health conditions are, are mental illnesses right now? Well, first of all, I'm a psychiatrist, not a psychologist. Psychiatrist, uh, my apologies. <laughs> um, that's interesting. I'm not sure. There is definitely a dialectic in it. That is, when we look for illness, we find it. So, for instance, the diagnosis PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, Trauma is something we discovered very widespread in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. In the United States, it was the Vietnam War that taught us about trauma. So soldiers came back from the war and they were very disturbed. And we didn't know what was wrong with them. And we started talking about various kinds of illnesses like shell shock. And there was one group of psychiatrists called it stress response syndrome. Finally, in the 1980s, they named it post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. In the 1990s, research was done in the inner cities in the United States. And what they discovered is, for instance, I think it was 56% of fifth graders on the south side of Chicago, which is almost entirely African-American, mm. have seen a dead body by the fifth grade. So this research came out and everybody looked at this and say what i haven't seen a dead body how did these kids see dead bodies well drive-by shootings violence in their homes police killing people they had seen a dead body and then we started to say huh there must be a lot more trauma among inner city kids than we ever imagined mm -hmm. and we started talking about ptsd in kids Mm. So the number, the prevalence of PTSD in the population grew hugely, just like what you said. That is, we were aware of it because of this research. And so we started asking kids. Kids come to see their pediatrician. All of a sudden, the pediatrician is saying, have you ever seen a dead body? And kids would say, yeah. 
And then we'd say, well, what was that like? And they'd say, it really freaked me out. And we'd start talking to them about it. So, so the diagnosis grew, and we started to think PTSD is more prevalent. But then the other part of your question is correct, too. It isn't more prevalent. We mm. just paid attention to it. Yeah. So I think mental illnesses are like that. I don't think there's a rise. I think the incidence of, um, for instance, schizophrenia is about 1% of the population and always has been as far as we know. The incidence of bipolar is somewhere between 1% and 2%. And it's, it's been pretty stable. If anything, the prevalence that we estimate of bipolar disorder has grown and the reason that it's grown is that we have treatments that we didn't have before. Yeah. So, so for instance, lithium, which came along in the 70s, we can give lithium to people with bipolar. What that tends to do in medicine is the doctors start saying, I don't know what to do with this person's emotional problems unless he's bipolar and then I'll give him lithium. So they start diagnosing more cases and giving them the lithium, which helps in a certain number of cases. Mm. So you're right. There's a play back and forth in terms of the number of people. But those core conditions, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depressive disorder, they've stayed about constant. Mm. What changes is anxiety, PTSD, minor depression, and that has to do with how carefully we look. Mm. So if we're not looking, we're not going to see it. But when we have a new medication like Prozac, which came out in 1989, we start saying, well, who could we give Prozac to? It's really a wonderful drug. Let's see who, who will benefit from it. And then all of a sudden, oh, there's more depression around here than we thought. We'll just give everybody Prozac. And, and so the prevalence goes up. But you're right, it's no real change. It's just something about our practice and what we're looking for. Mm, I see. There's a lot of self-medication as well with drugs like Prozac in, in society. From what I've yeah. Well, we, we're having an epidemic in the United States of opioids and a lot of deaths by opioid overdose. Uh, and I, I, I think you're onto something. I think that is self-medication. Mm -hmm. I think that substance abuse and trauma are very connected. Yeah. So that a lot of people who abuse substances are self-medicating for, for, for their pain, uh, which involves a lot of trauma. Mm. Um, so one, one more question I had. Uh, so do, are you... Um, so I was going to ask you about basically... Um, well, this was sort of so. My my dad my dad is a clinical psychologist. He wanted me to ask you this. So he 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 had heard that. So he he had heard that we could apparently brainwash people using isolation, but using. Ex say that once more. I just didn't hear the sentence. So my dad was telling me apparently that we can. I uh, if we if we uh, extensively isolate people. With no outside stimulus, we can essentially uh, we might be able to brainwash people. I was wondering if there there is any truth to that. There, if if we've ever tried brainwashing, he's exactly right. And if you look at the history of brainwashing, for instance, prisoners of war and concentration camps and and that kind of thing, 
isolation is the first thing they do. In South American dictatorships, what they would do is they'd put people in solitary confinement. Then they'd torture them. And then they'd say, so confess. We think you killed the prime minister, whatever it is. And within not too long a time, people are saying, okay, I confess. I did it. Whatever you think I did, I did it. And so we, we, we have an epidemic of false confessions by torture. And the first step of torture is isolation, solitary mm. confinement. Mm. And, 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 yeah. and if you look at the research on torture and um, questioning, like enhanced interrogation that the United States has been doing in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, the, the, the manuals on how to do the interrogation is put this person in isolation, separate them from all sources of information so that they have no news coming in, they have no connection with anyone they know, and then get them in the interrogation room, and then your influence over them is increased. Yeah. And that's how, that's how torture and interrogation work. So your dad is exactly right. Now, I have a favor to ask of you. Sure. Your dad is going to see this uh, absolutely, video. Absolutely. All right. I'd like to know what he thinks, <laughs> whether he agrees with me about these things or what he thinks. Sure, I'll uh, I'll, I'll, I'll I'll get into I'll get I'll get his resp I'll, I'll film his reaction. <laughs> Good. Um, um, so uh, yeah, so uh, just to your point, um, so I have a very interesting statistics from the UK. That even so, you know, we, we have sort of, we're not, people are not, we don't really have, we have social isolation. Uh, so, in the, since the lockdown in the UK, the visits to um, domestic violence uh, helpline uh, websites has increased by 150%. Yes. So, if, so, so which, it's, it, it makes your point that if, so, you're, we're putting people into isolation to try to, uh, control their to, to to control to to ideally to reduce their violence to to you know because eventually they're going to be released as you said some high percentage of prisoners are eventually re released and if you're putting them into isolation it seems that they actually people are actually made more even as normal not even prison population but normal people in their houses they're committing more domestic violence than they otherwise would have. Well, that that's true. Now, I want to make clear, I am very sympathetic to people who have been in solitary confinement and get out. Hmm. They have a lot of trouble, emotionally and socially. I do not want to stigmatize them as violent or in any way dysfunctional people. So what I've told you is the way solitary confinement damages people. What's remarkable is how many exceptions there are to that. Mm -hmm. How many miraculous, healthy responses to solitary, like Albert Woodfox, and I could name a bunch of others who have written books about it. Um, a lot of people get out and they're very healthy. So I don't want to stigmatize everybody. If you've been in solitary confinement, I better be scared, afraid of you because you're dangerous. Mm -hmm. That's not true. Actually, on average, people who get out of solitary end up being very reclusive and withdrawn and into themselves. Mm -hmm. 
and they're not particularly a violent bunch, although there are a few people like with PTSD who become violent and then they give a bad name to all the others. Right. Um, the domestic violence issue I'm very tuned into, it's identical in the United States. And I think that has to do with a kind of equilibrium. If you look at a um, long-term couple where there is the possibility of domestic violence, when the woman gets out of the house and has her support network, so she's not isolated, the man goes to work, comes home, and they tolerate each other through the evening, there are less incidents of domestic violence than if they got locked in the house together. Mm. If they get locked in the house together, the woman has no support. The man has his pent-up emotions, and every once in a while they break loose, and that's when the domestic violence happens. So it's an empirical observation that domestic violence complaints multiply when we're locked down with each other. Mm. If you think about it, I mean, I, I have a partner, and she and I, are that's the only person I see. That's the only person I've seen for, what, a month or six weeks. Now, we get along very well, so that's a fortunate situation. And I see my other friends on, on Zoom. Uh, what if we didn't get along? We're in the house all day together. I'm doing my work. She's doing her work, but we're in the house. And what if we didn't get along? probably our arguments would multiply. Mm. And I think that's how domestic violence happens. That people who don't have a good basic relationship with each other, the trouble multiplies because there's no diffusion into other relationships. So that, that man who commits, uh, perpetrates uh, domestic violence, he usually goes to the pub and has a few beers with his buddies. But now he can't do that. So he's home with his wife, and he hits her. Yeah. He has a beer, and then, and then he hits her rather than hanging out with his buddies. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Um, do, do, is there anything more, Rashad? No, I just wanted to say thank you for your time. I know we kept you for a lot longer than you anticipated, but it's been really useful, and I feel like we've really benefited from talking to you. We've learned a lot. So All right. Well... I appreciate it. You're both obviously very sharp and you're up on things. So it was a pleasure talking with you. And I, I feel, you know, I go into the prisons, I see some awful dark stuff, and I feel I have a social responsibility to come out and talk about it so that we can fix it together. And you're and always welcome to come over. Really enjoy talking to you. Please do come over anytime. Absolutely. You're always yeah. welcomed. All right, well, stay in touch. Will you send me, are you going to publish this as a podcast or what's going to happen? Yes, I will, I will, I will uh, send you all the links to it. All right. Yeah. And also send me some feedback from your dad. About 100%. Whether he's, uh, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> also, Dr. Cooper, if it's okay, um, I'd love to in future get in touch with you over email. Um, I'm, I'm a medical student myself. I'm uh -huh. interested in psychiatry as a field. I've thought a lot about it. I've got some placements in psychiatry next year. Um, but I'd love to get your expertise and insight about the field in general before I commit to it for the rest of my life. All right. Well, I'd be happy to be in touch. Thanks very much. You have, you have my information. so Yeah, I'll drop you a message. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you All very right. much. Have have a, Thank you for your work. Have a great afternoon or evening. You too. Thank you. <laughs> we'll be off to bed now. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right.
Okay, guys, that was our interview with uh, with Dr. Coopers. Yeah, I've got a lot to take away from that man. So many insights, so many things he said that were kind of shocking. For example, yeah. he was talking about human nature and vengeance. And I, I said something like, oh, it's human nature to want, want someone to be punished after they've killed. And what he said was so, he said, it's not human nature, it's a human possibility. That, that was very beautiful. That was, that was powerful. It makes me realize we think that it's so natural to want vengeance, but that's just kind of, it's an impulse that we have, which has been nurtured by society. We've been raised and the society around us values vengeance and retribution so much that we think it's innate to us, but that doesn't need to be the case. Yeah. That's just human possibility. So is compassion, love and forgiveness, like he was saying. And surely they are the things that we should be prioritizing if we want to see a utopia or a better society at the very least. And it's something we don't do. Yeah, and uh, that the research was interesting that the families of the people, the vic the murder victims, their families, um, af so the ones where the murderer was executed, they weren't any, they weren't any mm -hmm. le happier or well, they didn't. Their their remorse wasn't any different to those that that was uh, that the murderer was executed. Yeah, it was crazy. So like, yeah. But, but, but wait, I think I might have. I might have. I no, no. What you, yeah, I, I think you're spoke, saying you, when you said that, um, no matter how many people were like tested, if someone had had if someone had had a family member who was the victim of a murder seeing that murderer punished or that murderer killed did not decrease the amount of pain or sadness they felt. Yep. It did not make them feel more justice. So that is quite significant. It's quite substantial. It shows that getting, getting someone punished for doing something wrong doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring the loved one back, for example. Yeah. Maybe cultivating love and compassion is the route we need to go down in order to feel better about those things. Yeah, and I didn't expect to hear that that answer, to be honest with you. That, mm -hmm. the, it's a, that was such a beautiful sentence. It's, mm. a, it's a possibility. Mm. It's not... He thinks in a very, very radical way, very different to the system within which he works in America. Yeah, yeah. He's against social welfare and he's very for... He no, he, like he's he wanted... for social welfare. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. And it seemed like he wanted to decriminalize drugs. I don't know. I got that vibe. I feel like you, you, even if not decriminalize, you know, the, the degree to which drug sentences are conducted, it causes overpopulation in prisons. And then yeah. that leads to people being put into solitary confinement to deal with the overpopulation. And then that breeds and perpetuates mental health disorder. And then the cycle continues and more people go into prison and more people go into solitary and more people get broken. Yeah. Uh, yeah, drugs was a topic that m my mind has been changing o over the time on this. What's your opinion on drugs at the moment? Um, so, so here's my was my right. I'm going to tell you my position t till recently, but it has again. It my position is keep. I'm just keep changing it. Yeah. But essentially, I think. So the war on drugs is pretty much a lost war 
because it's so um, it's so uh, the profits are so high that it's gonna happen and like you're not for every one uh, smuggler you 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 put to prison there are ten that they go go by unnoticed so it's pretty think- much a lost war no not uh, there is more not not necessarily ten but there is more. Like, like he was saying as well, if you have people, like you have systems where, where drugs are dealt and drugs are like being distributed, there's systems like any business and the people you're persecuting, they're not the people at the top, it's the people on the street who are dealing the drugs. The system is not, the system's still intact. You've still got dealers at the top. Yeah. I mean, you've still got uh, suppliers, distributors, you know, the, the, you filter down to the dealers on the street and they're the ones getting arrested. It's not changing anything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And... Um... <laughs> Yes, so so I I'm some so yeah, uh, I was initially more pro like actually legalizing it, a mm-hmm. lot of the drugs because when you legalize it, you can actually regulate it and tax it. Mm-hmm. You know there is there is literally the government can get so much tax money if they mm-hmm. could get if if they could tax the drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, it removes the option as well when you've got those people coming from societies where men are in prison and there's no educational prospects and they want to make some money quickly. They resort to illegal drug businesses in order to, you know, get food for their family or make a bit of money for themselves and they end up in prison. If you legalize drugs, it removes that option for people. And if you instead use the money that you're spending in, you know, the war on drugs, fighting drugs, spend that on some kind of social welfare, then people won't have to resort to those things in order to provide for their families. Yeah, rehabilitation. Like, mm. um, I really like the Switzerland system, um, mm. uh, which which I think I think what they do. So, for example, I think they they're doing it in Portugal as well. If yeah, I I, th- I think that's the case uh, in Portugal as well. So essentially, it's not legal. The drugs are not legal in the sense that. Well, that's something we could talk about whether it should be legal, or, but it's it's not like legal. Uh, but, but what they do, if you're addicted to a drug, what they'll do, they'll they'll put you into clinics and they'll give you the actual drug. So, for example, if you're addicted to heroin, they'll give they'll give you like pure heroin with, with yeah yeah without because one of the reasons a lot of people die from heroin is because it's bad heroin it's like mm. <laughs> it, it's they mix it with other things but if it's like if it's made if the heroin has been made in a in a lab the, it, like just Wait, so they just give them heroin what does that achieve um no no they they put them no they put them to like they put them into rehabilitation clinic like they try to rehabilitate them back into the society in large but they will so and so the, the what that achieves is that they it puts drug businesses um drug drug the drug industry out of business why mm. because anytime someone, someone's addicted they go get it from the government not from the dealer mm. like the, the government will, they'll, they'll give it to you like they, they literally give you free free heroin if okay. you're addicted if you're addicted yeah Interesting. So you you putting work? them out of business. You put it. You making it no longer profitable. Is it working? Um, that's a very good question. I assume it is because because we, we, <laughs> we can, we can yeah we can definitely bring someone about that addiction and um different uh, drug enforcement. But um yeah, so, so that would be one way. I mean, it it, it sounds it, it sounds fairly rational. I don't know whether yeah. to what extent it's working 
Um, the other but yeah, was... legalizing. Yeah, I don't know. What do you think about legalizing drugs? <clears throat> Just kind of what I said about to some extent it would remove the remove the system of organized crime which is built around drugs and makes vulnerable people from poor socioeconomic backgrounds resort to those systems in order to provide for their family, in order to make a name for themselves, make some money, get some power. By legalizing, you're basically ending those systems. And by ending those systems, you're preventing such a large influx of young people into the prison population, which can only be a good thing, right? Right, yeah. No, well, because some people are pro-decriminalizing, but not pro-legalizing. That's the distinction I was trying to oh, get I your opinion mm -hmm. on. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, be, because so the, the, the argu so the argument against legalizing it would be that it, it might lead to actually more people using it. Mm -hmm. That would be the argument that if it's legal, if you can get it from a supermarket, then but more people might use. But then you, the counter argument would be they can get it from the local dealer anyway. Mm. So yeah, if there's a will, there's a way, right? Yeah, yeah. And then, so yeah, I'm I'm more on the side side of legalized tax regulate. Mm. I, know. I mean, I guess there's some drugs that, for example, heroin that are damaging, addictive, and they don't do as in they're just they're not white. I, I can't see a world where heroin is legal and readily available. What is the benefit to that? But then you've got other drugs, some psychoactive drugs, which don't have that much physical harm mm. caused by them. But most of the harm that comes from them is like you were saying, when they're mixed with other drugs, which are more dangerous. Um, so by legalizing, like you're saying, you can get a clean, pure supply of those drugs, but then it just begs the question, is that really needed and necessary? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But definitely, right, we can agree on one thing, that the sentences are definitely being too high. 100% disproportionately against black and ethnic minority groups in the West. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I've, I've, so I, so basically up till now, I wasn't really, right, I could see that, okay, if a system works better, we need to use that one, right? If it's, if a system has a, it gives gives you the lowest percentage of prisoners um, considering population and the system gives you um and the system gives you the lowest uh, the lowest percentage of uh, recommitting the crime going back to prison that would be the ideal system which is norway system but now i'm i i just took that for granted but now i understand why that's the case mm. because the reason is so what is it that we, so what do we call a good prisoner, right? What is a good prisoner? A prisoner that is, that does nothing. If you literally, right, you would be, everyone will, like all the God, like you will be awarded as a prisoner if you do nothing. If you don't, you just sit, you don't engage with people, you don't, you don't, you don't try to argue with, you just, you just sit down. Just it can be dangerous. It can be detrimental to an individual. For it doing can it. be detrimental to an individual. And when the person goes out of prison, they haven't learned a, new, a single new thing. They've just been, and if anything, if anything, they've been in the presence of other prisoners, learning new, new ways, new tricks, new, you know, they've learned more bad things. It breaks them. It breaks them down. The prison system in the West breaks you down. You're treated like dirt, you're called dirt, you're, you're, people are racist to you, people are violent to you. 
So all you can do is become reserved and become quiet and then you become the model inmate because you're not causing any trouble. Then you go back out into society and you're screwed. You'll <laughs> you probably overdose on drugs less, uh, mm-hmm. you'll pro- or, or you'll... You, so that's the thing. If you've learned... Right, let's say you were poor, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you go... This is just hypothetical. But you, you're poor, you go steal some money, they put you in jail... Right, you you, you resort you you, you 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 do some theft. They they put you to jail. Once you come out of jail, you're still poor. Mm. And it's like it's not like. And you've you got know, no skill to do anything about it. Exactly. And most of the as the uh, as Doctor Cooper's explained, most of the so when I said psychopath, psychopaths are a tiny percentage. Most of prisoners are not psychopaths. Mm. Uh, so yeah, the, and if you're not not a psychopath, you can. We, uh, it's probably there is, especially you know, in the context of America, where there are like thirteen percent um, blacks in the population, fifty percent of prison population is black. So that's certainly not. I would assume overwhelming majority of like black prisoners in America are not psychopaths. They come from a system which breeds crime by design. Absolutely. Absolutely, and uh, as he said, so it's because of it's because of economics, it's because of their communities, um, and yeah, and when they, when they go to so there was a certain environment that gave birth to those individuals becoming criminals, and mm-hmm. once and within that system, the environment still exists. Once that person comes out, everything is back to normal. So why shouldn't what, so, so the person it will it will just the person will just go back to what he was doing like he won't he won't all of a sudden try to learn like uh, software engineering after he comes yeah. out of prison especially if there has been mental damage to him mm-hmm. it's like if a tree grows under you know ugly circumstances if it grows you know and it's deprived of you know water and sunlight it's going to grow to be an ugly tree and the same applies to people who are put into ugly circumstances into societies where there's no social welfare they've got no money they're going to grow up you know contorted in the same way as the tree and taking them out of prison them like you're saying putting them back into that society without any squ- any new skills to break away from it is not going to do anything but then that's why i think systems like norway and Switzerland do so well because they teach those people the skills to break away from those self-perpetuating cycles within which they live and make something of themselves. And that's the way that Western systems need to operate as well. I guess there is a broader conversation about um, about uh, to have about uh, austerity as well. Mm-hmm. Because you know the the government like doesn't have the money to like uk government i don't think like you know we're having problems with funding the nhs mm-hmm. are they going to be funding the prisons like norway i don't think they will that's another but then you have to think long term as well yeah. why are there so many prisoners in the uk it's yeah. because the the I don't know the exact proportion, but such an overwhelming majority of prisoners are repeat offenders. They're people who have gone to prison, yep. come out of prison, and gone back to prison. For it's most it's actually the majority of them. Majority yeah, the of them majority. go back again. 
So yeah, that's a, you really know, it's a terrible system when yeah, yeah. majority of them go back again. Back up where they came from. So if you were to focus on reform, yeah, it may be expensive in the short term, but long term, think about what a good, like if you can prevent those people from repeat offending, then the 60, 70%, whatever it is, proportion of inmates who are repeat offenders won't be repeat offending. So you'll decrease the number of prisoners by 70% hypothetically. Yeah. It seems like a no-brainer. Yeah, I guess so. I want to get your thoughts on thought on this as well. So I I think hum our human intuition about how we can minimize crime is very flawed. You know, because literally, you know, if someone so if you if you, if you if someone hasn't read the research, haven't studied different types of prison systems, right? If you ask them, right, there is this. We have this country where prisons are like hell. And we have this country where prisons are very well, like the people treat you very well in prison. Which which country do you think has lower lower crime? Mm. Then everyone's gonna go. Oh, obviously the one that that that's tough on crime is uh, is, is gonna have a lower pr- pr- uh, lower prison population. But it turns out it's the exact opposite. Mm. Um, and I think um. And I'm I'm really glad you asked the retribution question mm-hmm. because usually, usually, you know, where we hear about crime is about in the in the newspapers and newspapers journalists they like they make it so when you read it you you put you put yourself as the victim as the victim of that that criminal and obviously you'd want the worst things to happen to that person but they don't appreciate the point of view of the criminal they don't and you. And, you know, some people are evil. Some criminals are very, they're all psych, but they are, they don't constitute the majority of the prisoners. Mm. Those very few, like, you know, serial killers, let's say, mm-hmm. right? They don't, majority, so majority of the people, even murderers, right? Even murderers, majority of them, they've probably, they like, it was a fight. It was, a, they were drunk or... Crime of passion. Crime of passion. Like, it wasn't pre-planned. Mm. I have... It, it was just, like, you probably pushed the guy, fell off, hit... It wasn't, I'm planning to m- murder tonight. But then they become hardened by the system. And then if they do ever get out, then they are going to be the same people who become those, you know, those people who are destined to do evil things because they've been broken down by yeah. a system which labels you as that and treats you like that. Then when you come out of that system, you believe you are that. And confounded with that is the fact that you're back in a society which reads the crime that you committed initially. And of course, you're going to end up ugly, contorted and a criminal mastermind. So you need to change the system. Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that's so true if it's it's all about the. It's the society that breeds criminals. People are not... Overwhelming majority of people are not inherently... Well, I would say overwhelming have potential to do, to be good. Yeah, of course. Of course. And it's those very few which, which we need to take measures for, but in a humane way, not... Mm. Uh, hate is, in, is not innate. You, you, you need to be taught, you know, to, to discriminate, to hate to do violent acts to other people for no reason. It doesn't come innately to people. Um, 
Yeah, I. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> there is. Uh, it's you know, we do we do commit murder, but it's not. Um, it is possible train to train most people not to commit crimes. Do you think people need to be trained not to commit crime, or people need to be trained to commit crime? I feel like crime is committed as a. I think circumstances breed crime more than people's genetic makeup. Or oh yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's 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 true. It's just no. Uh, uh, that's true. So again, if uh, I think overwhelming majority of people who are in prison are because of if they were in the pe let's say okay, let's say if any given prisoner, if you could put him in very well educated, very well environment from mm -hmm. childhood then they wouldn't have become the, i agree mm. i agree uh it's just uh i think that you know i i don't think i don't think it's it's a controversial point but i think uh you know the reason we have laws and system is because um the um what well, the instinct to do violence and it's like evolution evolution 101 it exists within us to do violence the instinct to um the instinct to commit murder is within us uh, mm -hmm. but we can overcome all of those if i killed someone every time i had the impulse to you know yeah <laughs> in prison for the rest of my life you know what exactly I mean? we, have, we have the potential to overcome it though that's the main that thing. that is the main thing your prefrontal cortex is saving you that's our <laughs> Takeaway point. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, and the meditation and the brainwash, all very. I I thought he was gonna like mock me. I thought he was gonna go, oh you idiot. True. It's true. My thoughts is real. <laughs> I was no. I was hesitant to ask those questions. I was like, is he gonna go? Oh, that's. <laughs> nah, of course not. I mean, yeah, it's been like all the documentaries I've seen. People in solitary confinement, they always say like, yeah, mindfulness. You know, being present, being aware meditating spirituality religion whatever it is th there's some transcendental thing that helps them cope we need, we need to bring some people to talk about meditation i'm gonna lie yeah we'll try and get like dalai lama or something. <laughs> yeah we'll get <laughs> dalai lama i don't know if he uses zoom <laughs> yeah apparently in, in, in tibet they're not very <laughs> <laughs> is he in tibet he's in tibet right yeah he, oh no didn't he get he oh yeah, he had to. He had to, he's in India now. He's in is India. It, is he in? Is it India? Is I it think India? he had to. He had to escape yeah, he had Tibet. To, he can't go to Tibet because China Chinese authorities were looking for him. Maybe it's India. I don't know. We'll find out. We'll ask him. Yeah. Anyway, we'll, <laughs> our next guest, Dalai Lama, everyone. <laughs> anyway, thank you guys for listening. If you made it this far, probably no one did. I mean, it's been. It's oh, been you know, no, no. Shout outs. <laughs> shout outs to, to to two guests that did, and they put it into uh, two viewers who did, and they put it into comment section. Daphne, uh, Daphne Frank's shout out to you. Uh, so did, my did, ideals instructor. We were meant to. We were meant to shout out their names. Being safe. Go on, now you shout out. I've done my shout out. <laughs> did you shout? Did you shout someone out? Yeah, I've shouted someone out. Who was it? Was it the guy who commented? No, no, it's, it's Daphne. My um, she's uh, she taught me ideals. I mean, she was my co-facilitator in you. Right. Okay. So we had we had this guy. Friend. What was his YouTube channel name? His name was. Could you check for me, Asha? What's the, what, so on on our last video, the the two people who commented. Uh, 
will come until we watch till the end. We got to give them a shout out. Okay, guys, shout outs, shouts out to Rispaguli and Puria Tayebi for watching our previous video till the end and putting in the comments. So if you if if you want to get shouted out next time, again, put name. You know what to do. You know what to do. Okay, do we do we end with our sign of love and compassion? Yeah. Okay, we'll end with our sign of love and compassion. Where is your other hand, Asha? At the moment, I'm just. I was holding tape. That's fine. That's fine. Love doesn't know tape. Okay. Perfect. 